Hello, DER Task Force, and welcome to Episode 6, VEDER. For those of you who aren't steeped in New York energy policy, VEDER stands for the Value of Distributed Energy Resources, and is a novel means of transitioning beyond net energy metering for distributed energy exports. This conversation was inspired by two previous meetup presentations. Last year, this show's producer and CEO of Urban Energy, Russell Wilcox, helped the community understand exactly how VEDER works for community solar project developers. And earlier this year, Justin Gundlach of the Institute for Policy Integrity presented a paper his team recently published on a zoomed-out view of how a VEDER-like framework can apply to any state's distributed energy transition. If you're interested, check out the content library on our website to find the slides and recordings from these meetups. With that intro out of the way, enjoy the show. We recognize we can achieve deep decarbonization and do it in a way that makes the grid more resilient, efficient, and economic, but we have to change the model. Platform companies try to find common interests with companies that use their platforms. Rather than thinking of DERs as a threat, utilities should think about them as your services and your partners. I have a guess. I Go think that is Aubrey Zibelman. Ding, ding, ding. What? Woo. Yeah. Okay, sorry. I don't even know who that is, to be honest. Is that bad? <laughs> what? Um, she was the New York Public Service Commission chair, who was this like badass woman who was the chair when a lot of the rev proceedings came out. And then she left to go work in Australia for their grid. Oh, yeah. She She's like working. I think it's the South Australia grid now, which has like way more distributed energy resources. You learn something new every day, I guess. So. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know who that was, but sounds like a badass. And uh, thanks for the quote. <laughs> She's like OG Rev, basically. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then she left. And so did Rev's vision. Is that why it's a mess? <laughs> so this episode is going to be on valuing DERs in a post-net metering world. And Vitor... Uh, which is one example of how to do that, which is the the route New York State has taken. We're combining uh, what we learned in two of our meetups. The first was on Veter specifically and developing projects that use Veter, and that was by Russell Wilcox uh, in 2019. I think that was November, maybe October. And the second then uh, was just a little while ago in May. Uh, with Justin from the Institute for Policy Integrity. He and his team wrote a sort of a higher level look at valuing DERs in a in a post net metering world that, you know, was structured similar to to Veter, if not specific to Veter. Um, so I think the question we're trying to ask in this podcast is going to be you know, we all recognize that net metering has its drawbacks. Some even very much dislike it. And something else uh, needs to be um, implemented. But is Vita any good? That's what we're trying to answer today. Colleen, I think we already showed our hands, but... I actually think I actually like Vita. <laughs> I'm going to say Vita sucks right now, but... I just came to this recently. I'm changing my tune because I see a path towards it being very good in the long run. I think Colleen and I are always somewhat aligned on this. We want this DER local marketplace, you know, utopia. 
and uh, I think there's a path there through Vitor. But right now, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna try and hold back some of the venom. A week ago, I would have I would have just said sucks. Period. And but I you know well so we'll get into it. Yeah, it's all about phasing things in, right? You can't go 100% distribution market on day one. I feel like Vitor is a good first step. I mean, net metering was you know great when it first came out, but was just never going to be what we should be doing. And I think that Vitor is probably better than what a lot of other states are doing. So that's, you know, that's my overarching opinion. Like we can get into the specifics of why it's good and why it's problematic, but. I'm hearing not perfect, but better. Yeah. Okay. Duncan. Well, I, I kind of like, I like being the referee, uh, you know, there's no, red team, there's no team and then there's Duncan. No, but no. I, if I had to pick, I think generally I agree with Colleen. It's like better, but not perfect. And understanding that it was a huge lift to transition. Like we need to sort of like weight the outcomes with that in mind. That that's sort of like where I'm ending up, but I think it's, it's generally the same as, as Colleen and probably similar to you as well, James. Obviously I agree to some degree. Yes. I, I feel like I have to just play a role here and be like, let's not be complacent about that. Like, Oh, it's better, you know? So that's good. So I'm totally. going to come out a little firmer, maybe as, you know, I'll play, I'll play a role here. Great. Awesome. Just so to, why don't, so to make sure we keep driving this thing forward. Yeah. We, we need conflict. That's, I think yeah. that's the, the one I'll, thing I'll we stir probably the pot. do well I'll here. Stir the pot. All right. So why, why don't we start with just a little background then? Like, what are, what are we even talking about? Like better than what, worse than what? What's net metering, Duncan? Yeah. One sentence is net metering lets you spin your meter backwards when you have more solar then you have load, it pushes the meter backwards. So you're pushing solar onto the grid versus pulling it from the grid. It's a one-to-one credit. It's the same thing. Correct. Yes. So we're saying not only if you're you know, using less energy than you'd otherwise be using, will your bill reflect that? But also when you're producing more energy than you're using, your bill is always go- also going to reflect in effect, your meter spinning backwards, a one-to-one credit. If you pay X for electricity, now you're going to get a credit of X for your exports of electricity. That's how in most of the country solar works. And it's critical for solar um, to have some means of valuing the energy you push into the grid. Because for most solar in- installations, your production doesn't really match up with your use. And there's a, you know, a, a lot of installations where all of your productions in the middle of the day. And perhaps that's even when you don't use a lot of energy. So net metering is good. You're saying because I can put solar on my roof and get paid for it or credit for it in some way. But you seem to be suggesting that it's also not good for some reason. So can you like, you know, what are, what are kind of the, the pitfalls, you know, of, of net metering? Yeah, so it's it's good only insofar as we need some means of valuing what solar pushes back into the grid because that's an inherent part of solar. However, yes, there are reasons that many feel it uh, is insufficient or a blunt tool. And there's really three key reasons. Uh, the first is this idea of fairness, right? So if you get a one-to-one credit, let's say you pay 10 cents a kilowatt hour for energy, 
that you consume. And when you export energy, you get 10 cents a, a kilowatt hour back. There's this concern that, you know, really you're, you're neglecting certain costs of the system. A lot of system costs are either fixed or demand-based. They're not just marginal volumetric costs. And therefore, you're really shifting those costs onto others. And there's a ton of debate over that question. I mean, it's also whatever time of day the solar is going out, it's just a, a credit on like the month, right? So yep. whatever the prices of energy are doing, uh, technically, like other customers are, are paying for that in a way for me because I'm just getting this one credit on my bill. Yeah. So th- there's, yeah, these, these two issues like wholesale versus retail. You know, we have to pay for the infrastructure somehow. If you're getting a full retail credit, that means, you know, you're not helping pay for the wires, the transformers, the poles, et cetera. Yeah. Then the second issue being it's very blunt. It's not time specific. It's not location specific. Energy is more or less valuable on different parts of the grid. It doesn't account for, you know, advanced grid services like, you know, spending reserves or frequency regulation, all this kind of next level DER stuff we always talk about. Um, but those at a high level are the two arguments. It's, it's too lucrative. It's causing a cost shift, that argument. And it's very blunt. It's, it's not very dynamic. It doesn't really, doesn't really allow us to achieve the, the full DER's vision I think we're all, we're all looking for. Yeah, because I think it's important to remember, though, that when this was first implemented, we didn't think there would be enough solar on the grid for this to really be a problem. No one really was concerned about cost shifting. And then there wasn't really a better way of doing it because the meters could only run backwards. That was the only way to account for exporting on the grid. But now that we're getting smart meters or additional inverters, that smart inverters, right, that can provide more detailed data on when solar is producing, you can also start thinking about what new tools are available. That's super important to point out, actually, because people still don't realize that up until five years ago, even in a lot of the country today, like someone with a clipboard goes out and looks at a meter once a month which is just a kind of clock, like a dial that spins around and writes down the number, gives that information back to the utility. So now we're putting in smart meters that records the time of day that solar is going out versus power is being pulled in. You can start talking about, you know, changing things by location, by time. But up until very recently, we actually just didn't have the means of kind of coordinating information, if you will. So... I feel like that point's often never underlooked when people are having these conversations is we're always kind of like feel like all this digital infrastructure is out there. Why can't we do it this way or that way? But there's very real kind of physical constraints or, you know, informational IT constraints to the grid right now. So that's sort of the first barrier to get over. And that's happened in a lot of areas. So that's why in places like New York, where you see a lot of advanced metering infrastructure, you can start having a different conversation ar- around net metering. But like Colleen, like you said, it was really the only actual physical way to let solar onto the grid. Yeah. So it totally made sense at the time. Also, solar was still really expensive, right? So a lot of this was to help net metering was sort of proliferated to help reduce the cost of solar. But then at some point, you start getting better information. There starts being enough solar on the grid. Solar prices have come down. And it's kind of like, maybe we should, you know, these points that Duncan brought up, 
was like, maybe it's not really fair anymore. And maybe we can do it better because we have better information. And that's where I think the foundation for Vitor was formed. Yeah. So at the time that New York State came to that set of realizations that Colleen just laid out, it was decided we needed some new form of compensating DERs. And now key, we're really just talking about compensating DERs exports, right? The amount of energy you use from your DERs that you self-consume really is just valued by the way your bill works. And, and that didn't change, or in reality, that's always changing, right? The way we design rates is always a topic, you know, every year or two with public utilities commissions. But what this was really about was exports, because that's what's that's what was really new about solar and previously really unconsidered. So that's a really important point. I just want to pull out here because part of my you know objection later is is going to be this idea around. I think thankfully people aren't using the term anymore, but people were calling it a prosumer, like a producer and a consumer. So one of the really new things that's happening on the grid with solar is that people are actually pushing energy out at sometimes during the day and pulling it in. So it's not just like a big nuclear plant on the wholesale grid, right? That's always selling power into markets. It's actually becoming bi-directional. So I think, you know, I just wanted to flag that up front in the conversation that that's not just like this sort of side point. It's actually really key and crucial. And, and part of the foundation of this conversation is the difference between exporting and importing and how we value all that. And, and net metering wasn't really even kind of starting to ask that question in a way. Totally. And, you know, it gets at actually a big disadvantage of net metering to DERs, right? People often think about net metering as this thing that benefited DERs. And in a lot of ways it did. One thing it really, really constrained DERs under though, is in most states, I think all states, if you get a net metering agreement with your utility, you're, you're limited by the amount you can export. You can only export so much that your net exports and imports uh, equal zero. Or I think they let you, you know, produce like 105% of your energy, just accounting for the fact that over time your solar will degrade. But that's actually a huge, like people undervalue how huge that is of a constraint on DERs because it says DERs can only defer load at the point at which they're installed, which is like a fundamental view of what they are. It, it, that assumes DERs are just a way to essentially produce like net load, load reduction, not actually contribute to the broader supply base that you know keeps everybody else's lights on, right? And this is a huge point of why we need to move beyond net metering, because if we want DERs to be a significant portion of our generation, not just sort of this thing off to the side that reduces load, we have to be able to produce potentially more than we use at a given site. And that actually is the foundation of my disagreement with Vidur right now, which we'll get into, that it's swinging too far in the other direction, where now we're just looking at DERs as another form of supply. We're decoupling it from load in a way. And that's the problem that is happening in, in New York currently. But in order to get there, we probably have to unpack a bit more what Vitor is, maybe, and, and how it's different from net metering and how far we've come in doing it and, and, and where it's going, maybe. And, th and then we can kind of get to the everyone's hot takes at, at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> yeah. So I think, right, I think that's a really good point. So the main difference between 
net metering and Veter is net metering paid for, again, as we mentioned, it was one for one equal to the retail rate of the customer. So if the customer was paying 15 cents a kilowatt hour, that's what they were getting back. And that was made up of, you know, distribution costs, supply costs, and also, you know, any sort of other adders that might be in a rate such as energy efficiency. The issue, as we mentioned, is that you're not paying for those. And so Veter tries to break out what value RDR is actually bringing, right? So one, the sort of obvious one is the energy supply, right? So instead of purchasing from a power plant upstate, you're purchasing from this DER. And so that set the value set there at the locational based marginal pricing, which is basically the day ahead supply cost that takes into account supply energy costs that set by the New York ISO. The wholesale market. The, yeah, it's the wholesale yeah, the price market. of energy on, on each day. You know, it's always going up and down. Um, and so that is location-based and it's time-based and it is a lot lower than the retail rate. And so I think that's sort of the important thing is that a lot of the negative impacts of this have been, you don't want to just pay supply because the idea is that there's additional value to DERs beyond just the energy that you're getting. Yeah. So to try to add to that, there's a couple other items on the supply side. So one is the renewable energy credit, which is basically the environmental credit for it being a renewable resource. And then there's the installed capacity, which is called ICAP in New York State. And that's basically a volumetric credit that is supporting the idea that you're adding additional capacity to the grid that could help in times of peak demand. I think the way it's paid, the way it's paid is different. It's paid in three different ways. <laughs> okay, I didn't. I didn't even know that. But my my <laughs> gathering was, as one of the line items in in Veter capacity, it's almost like the export is being paid as load, because utilities have an installed capacity base that they're obligated to pay to the wholesale market, and that's an important point to pull out. Is like who is paying these resources, right? It's the same as in the net metering regime where it's the utility, right? But they're using these kind of wholesale market mechanisms as indicators of how they pay the customer. So the installed capacity payment is coming out of their, maybe in their sense, it's like lowering their obligation to pay to the wholesale market, right? So then they're paying any solar on their grid, trying to calculate what that is worth, right? How does how does that work, right? Because like, yeah, if at a high level, what this is trying to achieve is to compensate DER exports for their ability to essentially help on the worst day on the grid when load is at its absolute highest, right? How, how do you come up with an estimation of what solar could do on that day and that hour? Yeah, I was going to say there's, there's three alternatives. The first two are volumetric based. And one is that like around four cents in New York City. And that's sort of the total annual one. Basically, you get that times the proxy capacity factor. And then one is sort of a based on the summer hours. So you get, you know, the amount you create during the summer. Mm -hmm. So that one is a is a higher rate, but you're more tied to producing at the time when it's needed. And then the third one is based on the prior summer peak KW coincident production. 
So there's almost sort of like different risk levels you can pick, right? So you can either get the cheapest, you know, lowest offer price and just sort of say like, or you could try and increase that. And I'm going to assume that if you, you know, for example, had a battery paired with solar, you'd be more likely to go for something when you can control your export. And if you really just have solar and you're not really going to be managing it, then you're probably looking at going for the one that's just volumetric. Right. And so that's a super interesting sort of first look into the tension, I think, that exists in the New York market around Vider. Because in 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 theory, like some people are going to choose the riskier way because they'll calculate like, oh, if I'm just smarter about my load management or making sure I'll, I'll put a battery here as well. And then I can turn the battery on during that peak time and I'll get paid more. And I run my financial model. And one says I get a, a 12% IRR and the other one's a 9%. So I'm going to go with, I'm going to, I'm going to choose option B. I think in reality, most people are, are just saying like, I get three cents for that one. That's pretty simple, you know, <laughs> because yeah. I think it, this is my, this is my, uh, you know, weekly, uh, daily, uh, or David energy ad saying that's kind of the, what we're trying to solve, right. Is like giving tools to developers, whether it's load management or battery management to, actually understand the complexity uh and making sure and shaping the load at the right times and getting the most value about it uh, out of it and, and blah 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 so i know firsthand that in reality like i I'm, I'm sure at least today and and hopefully it changes in the future people are just taking the i'll just take the flat rate i can plug it into the model really simple and i'm sure duncan is you know you're nodding your head over there like you know how developers work Right. Yeah, we want contracted revenue. Contracted yeah. revenue. That's the other what ones this you is all about. The the other ones you have to think to get that money. I don't want to think. I just want right. to like just, sign a deal. Right. I'll take nine no. percent IRR locked in over ten percent with like you know all this other whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Jo joking aside, I think it does get at like the incentives of of the value chain, and you have developers and investors who want stable cash flows. You have you know, those who control DERs and energy traders who want, you know, want to play on the volatility and the way the value chain is aligned can sometime cre sometimes create incentives that don't perfectly match the way the, the, the market incentives work. And I think that's ultimately why I was going to ask this question, why uh, the New York, you know, Public Utilities Commission came up with this idea that there should be three ways to value capacity. Because like, I think the economists would be like, no, there's one way, the right way, right? But they're like, look, we got to offer a few options because like, you know, this marketplace isn't perfect. It's a little immature. And like, you know, if we, if we do only one way, we might not get any projects. Right. I think that's a theme we see throughout Veter. So I'm going to answer your question and then we're going to kick it back to Colleen to keep going through the value stack so we don't get too lost on that. But I, I think, I mean, that, that, again, is, is like the underlying tension here, right? Where one, we want projects to happen. So we're going to give these easy contracted revenue streams to developers. But two, and I, I think they are earnest in it, which is why I, you know, I'm still in my heart of hearts, like want Vitor to succeed. The goal is to get to this real-time market, you know, functioning much like a wholesale market does, right? Where Developers are are kind of acting more like IPPs. They're taking risk on their revenue streams. It's not all contracted. So at least like the policy framework sort of lays out 
those options. That's why I say there's this kind of light at the end of the tunnel, because I think there's at least room for the more, you know, putting some dynamics into this and getting more out of these projects versus just the lo the lower hanging fruit. And, and we're going to get more into that, that later, but I'm going to constantly push back on like, we as a, as a group need to get away from the idea of contracted revenue. Like it, it gets you off the ground. It's the same thing as net metering. Like that's a 20 year contract, basically cut 20 year contracted revenue. It, it pushes the space forward. It makes projects happen, but ultimately it's an artifice and that's the center of the issue. So I think in Duncan, to answer your question, they've laid out these options to be like, point like hey we're 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 going over there you know don't just look at the contracted revenue but we have to make sure that in an earnest way we're actually driving it that direction too and we don't sure. just get complacent at the low-hanging fruit because that, totally. that'll break down eventually when we get into the sort of like extended discussion later i want to come back to this point of like moving away from contracted revenue toward dynamic mm -hmm. at-risk market-based revenues because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to get dig into there, but I fear James and I will like burn 30 minutes on yeah. it. So, so let's just like put an asterisk there and so come back. Where we are now is net metering was only one-to-one. -one. Veter so far has an energy component, a capacity component, a rec component. What else is in there? Colleen? Yeah, so those are the three sort of supply side components. And then like there's- Simulating wholesale markets. Kind yeah, of, yeah, exactly. And then there's sort of three distribution side components. And so these are really, you know, they're going to be utility specific. They're going to be location specific within the utility as a way to say, how do we, where is there additional value on the grid? So the first one is demand reduction value. And that's basically what you get for exporting during the summer non-holiday weekdays. So when the grid needs you the most, did you produce energy? So this is a more narrow specific one than sort of general capacity from the ISO perspective. It's really where the window that's needed for that utility. And then there's a even more location. Which is still fairly blunt, right? Which is still fairly blunt, right? But it's sort of saying, can you produce during this four hour window during the specific days during the summer, right? So it's like, and you get a dollar per kilowatt hour. So you don't right. get penalized that's for key. not producing. That that's key, right? Is that yeah. it's a demand reduction value, which is a kilowatt, but you're getting paid in a per kilowatt hour rate, right? Yep. Well, at least in the in the New York version. So like yep. another another version of like abstracting an abstraction. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good theme of Vitor, abstracting abstractions. <laughs> so the other one that I think gets a little bit more at actual events and. Um, your capability is your locational system relief value. And so that's a dollar per KW event. And there's, I think, 10 events a year. And basically, this is only in specific high value areas where you're really helping to defer distribution constraints on the grid. Uh, so I want to say like the Brooklyn, Queens area in Connecticut territory has a higher locational system relief value because they have demonstrated grid constraints. And so you're sort of helping reduce need to build capital infrastructure like a new substation. And this is this is big, right? Like this is a huge difference between DERs and centralized assets that 
not only can they provide you know locational value and suit to serve customers blah 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 they also can reduce the amount we need to spend on building the grid itself is that yeah right? i think it's one of the biggest benefits of DERs from a grid system perspective, right? Is that you can put it in places where you have constraints or you can put it after you have a constraint. You know, if there's a transmission, right? Transmission constraint coming into New York City, can you build enough DERs in the city itself in order to not need to build a new transmission line? Like that's a question. That's where DERs become interesting. So I think that locational relief is a real potential. So there's one more piece that we're going to come to after this in mm -hmm. the value stack in New York, right? But the idea of locational system relief, whatever it is, part of what is such a problem here, right, is that we're trying to drive towards a real functioning marketplace where people can kind of make these decisions and there's really robust price signals that incentivize development and, and blah, blah, blah. What we just described is not a market whatsoever. Right. Because even if you just think of DRV and LSRV are the how you actually see those things on your bill is a demand charge. Right. So kind of taking this back to first principles for a second, the grid has two components. One is energy supply, like how much energy is actually being consumed on a given day. And two is is demand or capacity, like how much the infrastructure that you actually need to deliver that power, which has a, a constraint on it. Right. And so demand charges when you get like a dollar per kilowatt charge on your bill is a very real reflection of like, we're going to charge you for how much power you draw in a given moment for the month, because it is a symbol of, of the fact that there's a real physical constraint on this grid. Right. And so mm -hmm. that's easy for a developer to look at and they look at your last 12 months bills. And this is what happens in, in behind the meter development. And they're like, oh, you're paying $20 a kilowatt. If you lower that demand charge, you're going to save a ton of money because I'm going to use what's, you know, we've talked about peak shaving before. If I can predict that peak and cut it off, you're going to save a lot of money. So the utility has, they have, you know, their domain is infrastructure. So they're very good at like, okay, the grid's constrained here, there, and we need, we should get distributed resources here. But there's also the wholesale component, which is the energy supply. And what I think is happening with Vitor is, the utility has payment obligations to the wholesale market, right? Through installed capacity or energy supply. And they also have a lot of knowledge about what's going on in their distribution grid. And by lumping these two things together, creates this sort of cocktail of like really confusing rate structure and designs. And it's not always accurately reflecting what's actually happening physically on the grid. Right. And then we get to our, our final one, which for someone who doesn't love markets, so, someone, sorry, for someone who does love markets, <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to love this one. Um, the community credit, which is just essentially an additional dollar per kilowatt hour value to help incentivize the building of DERs on the grid. It does vary by utility. And in New York City, it makes up a pretty substantial portion. It's, I think, 12 cents a kilowatt hour right now, which is about half of the residential retail rate like on average so it's a pretty big bump in or can be in other places it's only two cents a kilowatt hour and this is really i would say kind of a legacy holdover of understanding that net energy metering in addition to being a way to compensate people was also a way to create investment in renewable energy and so 
you know that there's value to community um, distributed generation and you just want to make sure you aren't phasing in a market-based solution too quickly that the market can't respond to. Right. So what the community credit formerly called the quote market transition credit did was when you take this beautiful value stack from a practical or theoretical, uh, rather theoretical view of this should be paid for LSRV, Rex, energy capacity, you total all that up and they're like, oh, well, we're, we're not giving enough contracted revenue to developers to actually want to go out and build stuff. So we're just going to put this market transition credit, which is 12 cents a kilowatt hour, which is very high. Very high. Very high. And what it did is it actually killed the behind the meter market in New York. Like that's what's happening. Because when you, when you total up, you have, you have this commercial building, right? And you walk up to it and you look at their bills. They're paying like all in between demand charges and, and supply charges, say 14 cents a kilowatt hour. And you then say, okay, I have this VDR framework. So every time they're offsetting, you know, self-consuming on site, back to Duncan's point earlier, they're getting paid, you know, it's, it's 14 cents per kilowatt hour, right? Because they're like offsetting, you know, that's in the net metering framework, right? But then when they're exporting under the VDR regime with the community credit, which is 12 cents and everything else added up, it's say like 28 cents a kilowatt hour. So in the Vader framework, you're allowed to do community solar projects or behind the meter projects. And when you line up the value stacks between behind the meter and community solar, you'll say, if I build this solar farm or, or solar on this, on this roof, for half of, the, half of the solar production, I get paid 14 cents through like a bill offset. And the other half, I get paid 28 cents. Whereas if I do a community solar project, the whole thing's 28 cents. Right, so I'm a week, way more money doing community solar. Right, so the entire New York market has shifted to in front of the meter projects. Like that's what's happening on the ground today. Behind the meter in New York is dead, and Veter killed it. And that's where I say Veter sucks today, <laughs> because like we made a decision through the community credit that. We want this market thing to happen, but we're not willing to let it slow development. So we're just going to shove this thing in there so that we keep incentivizing building and we're, we're going to hope that that marches towards a market still like down the road, like we'll, we'll get there eventually. So I'm just here to say like, well, let's make sure that eventually happens because this is just like, yeah, sure. It's better, but in a way if anyone is still with us in this conversation, I'm surprised because like, this is so complicated. Like I live in this space and I didn't understand how all this worked until like a week ago after like two presentations, all these conversations, all these meetups, I've been like lost you know, until, until now. So like how, how are people, it's like, we're, it's just this patchwork solution right that great Pro projects are happening like I, I i will tell you projects are going to take off in new york for sure there's gonna be a lot of dg build but is it going to be built in the right way and and so that's like the heart of the matter i think duncan's probably over there like yeah baby build build dg i'm gonna get paid as a developer and we're building a lot of renewables right but that's that's the heart of the issue and it's expressed through the community credit yeah per personally I mean, 
myself and our business is more geared toward behind the meter projects. So I don't actually celebrate the idea. Of That's why you don't moving. work in New York. Exactly. Um, and I, I don't, I, I do occasional stuff in New York, but for the most part, it is not a focus of my attention for two reasons. One, because, you know, my business is very much built on solving my customers' energy problems. Like that's what we do, right? That's why we incorporate resilience, why we incorporate savings and sustainability. And it's really hard to do that when you only think about the way you're serving the system and not serving your customer. The second reason then gets at your other point, which is it's just so Byzantine. You almost have to be a Vitor specific project developer. I mean, not entirely. There are people who play in multiple markets well, but like it, it takes a lot of your time and attention it's to work in New York. Upfront, yes, but then it's like, oh, 28 cents. So, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not it's saying not, it it's not that complicated it, yeah. at the end of the day. But so yeah, I have a question for you now. Why did Vitor start? What was the event that spurred all of our politicians to action? Oh, 100% Hurricane Sandy. Hurricane Sandy. Yeah. We wanted resiliency. A more resilient distributed system. We, we reforming the energy vision started. The idea of like the 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 sort of like distribution market, like all that kind of stuff, and you know, eventually that turned into into Vitor. Right. So we wanted a we wanted distributed resources to solve the resiliency problem, and then we realized that we needed a marketplace to to really do it. Right. So tell me, when I have an in front of the meter solar and battery project, whose lights are staying on when the grid goes down? I don't know if that's an answered question, but I think generally nobody's. Exactly. Like, yeah. If the grid goes down still, it's down. Unless you're like isolating that feeder somehow, which I know we're not putting that money in, right? Like to, to, to just create this very fragmented distribution grid. We have the same problem. It's like building a more granular wholesale market. It is not coupling load to supply. It is not localism it's not like solving the community microgrid issue that colleen and i love talking about i guarantee you when the next hurricane comes through I, I, like whose lights are gonna be on it's not gonna be a scale microgrids microgrid where where you have island mode it's really interesting not, yeah I like, and that's what's that fascinating about justin's presentation is that one of the line items in his in the like theoretical policy framework approach is resiliency and it says in his presentation changes like basically utility to two utility like they have to be the ones to value that but the the point being like that should be a component in the veter framework and if you're we just had this whole discussion about russell's presentation about how it's being instantiated in new york and is there a line item in there about resiliency no try to value resiliency <laughs> it's what the customer is willing to pay for it in duncan's words and which I think is actually, he thinks, he says it as a joke, but I think it's actually a, a beautiful, like it actually makes a ton of sense because like in, in California, like all the wildfires ha happening and, and the grid shutting down, customers are deciding what's worth it to them, right? But like, that's not what is happening in, in New York, right? Because like, we're not actually, I don't think we're building a more resilient system. You have to couple it to load. You have to put it behind the meter. You have to customer cite it. What I think is interesting here is like, I mean, so I, I, I do agree with myself <laughs> that um, <laughs> the value of resilience is what people will pay for it. Um, and I think a response to that could be, 
well, look, Duncan, like if the value of resilience is what people will pay for it, then, you know, for some people, maybe that's worth one cent a kilowatt hour. And for others, maybe it's worth 10. And if so, you know, for those, it's very valuable. It will push it beyond the value of, of exports. Right. And we won't have this problem James is talking about, and it somehow must just mean people don't care about resilience. And I think that only would be true if the way we're valuing these exports and community solar actually reflected power system fundamentals. Because then, yeah, if people didn't pick the behind the meter, like clearly it just meant it wasn't the resilience didn't matter enough for them. But like, that's not the case. We're assigning arbitrary value to exports. Right. So, so of, of course, that's like where when the you, abstraction when you throw becomes 12, the issue. Yeah. When you throw 12 cents at something, well, yeah, it's hard to get people to care about the resilience. Right. Then. Yeah. They're like, I don't remember Hurricane Sandy. Uh, uh, yeah. Lease payment. I'll take that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's this, so, or the, you know, the 5G antenna. Like, sure, I'll take this. <laughs> so, like, when you try and this is like the problem with taking a top down approach to building a distributed grid is that like it's not distributed in the sense that I mean it, which is like, People are making these decisions. Their lights are staying on when the, the main grid goes down. We have all these community microgrids and like islanding capabilities and like truly building resiliency. We've lost we've lost the the vision in, in my mind. Like plain and simple. So yeah. here's a, a two ways I could be wrong. One is I guess like you could build, you know, if you're you have a ton of community solar in like zone J, if you could island all of zone J then that could stay on during a, a Hurricane Sandy event. I don't think that's true. I think resilient ha resiliency like has to play out at, at the like per meter level, basically. Or two, if, if there was a framework for like the developer when they're citing community solar in someone's backyard at like a high school, and they're just paying, you know, they're paying that high school lease for the land. If there was a credit in the framework of the policy to like build switching gear, also to like feed that power into the school when the power the grid went out then they would do it but like you have to build the gear like you need to build the infrastructure on site right Duncan and knows this better than costs. anyone right like yeah so everyone's just taking the 28 cents and like yeah good job we're gonna build a lot of i'm doing air quotes dg but like is it dg in the sense that's meaningful and i say no I think that's really interesting. I, I do wonder if there's, I've asked people about this and never gotten a great answer. If there's an opportunity to build solar plus storage for, for community solar that is, you know, on a rooftop, but just, you know, feeding into the grid and then build in the transfer switches and other gear required protective relays, et cetera, such that when the grid goes down, it becomes a behind the meter system. And that is paid for by whether or not people want to pay for it. Assuming interconnection rules allow for that, which I'm right. not sure of because I don't know anyone who's actually tried this. But like you, I think you could make that argument, right? Like people, you know, like, you know, if, if it adds, you know, 20 cents a watt to the cost of the solar project, well, then do people care about resilience that much? Like I, you could, I think you know, argue that's a way forward. And, you know, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure why or why not folks have tried this. So just thinking through that though, is 12 cents basically that question, right? Like, do you value resilience more than this 12 cents a kilowatt hour? Because they could put it behind the meter now. 
there is some inherent value to resilience at the moment that you could argue. To answer that, I'd say like, what what's the solution, right? That's not this like, okay, 12 cents versus resiliency. Cause that's not the question we should be asking, right? You know, Duncan usually has our crazy ideas, but I'm gonna throw one out there. What if you just using all the great study of their own distribution networks that we forced the utilities to do and they came up with these LSRVs and DRV rates and everything, what if instead of putting that through the export, you know, paying them per kilowatt hour basically for exports, giving them higher demand charges in those areas? Like if the cost to serve customers in certain areas is higher because the, the network is constrained and you need to put investment there through a high price signal, like if you just jack up, let's just call it $50 a kilowatt in like BQDM, right? On the demand, now it's on bill right? By the utility, you're going to see a ton of resilient DERs get built in like 12 months. It's the same argument like Duncan, what's happening in, in, in uh, California right now, like way more inbound leads, right? Once people have experienced the public pain. safety power shut the pain, right? Yeah. And so like once people get one bill where they're like, oh my God, what is this? Like, yes, there's going to be momentary pain, but like the point of high prices is they incentivize development. So we're trying to incentivize development through this like non-market function, which is the community credit. So my crazy idea is like, why don't you just hammer people with demand charges if that's like the real underlying like physical grid component that typically has been socialized across like the whole say Con Ed territory, make it more locational. And in those areas, DERs will get developed because those people are gonna be like, we gotta solve this. Generally, I agree with this, but I do think there's two potential responses. One is that it's similar to the idea of like being constrained by how much energy you're allowed to produce and export. Like in theory, reducing demand at a given site also reduces demand at that like node or not node, but feeder, right? Um, and if it's only paid for via on-bill mechanisms, you can't really help reduce the, the demand beyond your own, right? Right. Which I think just really gets into the inherent issue of like, why do we deal with load and export differently at all? Like, shouldn't it just be one big tariff? But that aside, I think then the second issue is like demand charges don't actually fix any problems on the grid because they're never coincident demand charges. And everyone goes bananas when people propose coincident demand charges, right? So like, if I just got whacked with a $50 per kilowatt demand charge, even though my peak demand happens at three in the morning when I like switch on, you know, like my weird little industrial machine, like that's sucks. <laughs> like, you know, and, and it, it, but more importantly, even if I buy something to reduce that, it doesn't help the grid in any way. Cause that's not when peak demand is. So I th like, I think that's part of the issue and why, why Vitor went the way it went is because like the politics are so hard of actually doing good rate design. When you do good rate design, there's winners and there's losers and it changes the power imbalance and, you know, the way that shakes out might not be feasible. I'm trying to think through this of how it's different in terms of the cost shifting or whether it's different in terms of cost shifting versus what's sort of happening now. But a lot of the, so like a lot of the constrained regions have, could have a lot of residential customers, right? Which don't currently have demand charges. So are we introducing demand charges, which is something that a lot of states are considering doing, right? Massachusetts has been mm -hmm. working through demand charges for residential customers specifically for this reason. I think that gets complicated in terms of 
what metrics you're trying to create or what you're trying to do because are people then just going to responding through more demand response type things by lowering their load at peak times versus saying I'm going to install DERs maybe we don't care right so from that market perspective like you're creating a signal people can respond to it how they want but it sort of feels like you're then increasing everyone's costs and then letting the people who can reduce their costs by building DERs build them but may, I guess that's the same thing that's happening now. It's just that there's a base level and other certain people are reducing their costs and other people's are staying the same. So I don't, it feels different somehow, but I don't think it actually is. No, I like, I mean, and I'm even thinking through it. So if I lowered my demand charges on my feeder with a battery, that should actually lower like my whole blocks demand charges, yeah, right? The, and I, the rate I, should go from 50 bucks kilowatt hour to yeah, you know 47 for the whatever. whole feeder, yeah. right? Because yeah. it is like physically there. So it is the kind of the same thing as like an LSRV, like more blunt tool, right? Yeah. Then you would need dynamic demand charges then, right? Yeah. right? Which so, is like good. Or just like real-time energy charges. Which is an energy And real-time constraints <laughs> so, charges. Yeah, yeah, the other, yeah, of course, the other way to do it would be to actually have nodes on the distribution grid that are priced in real time according to con physical constraints, like we do on the transmission grid. Good luck, though. Good luck. Like, I do not want to be the lawyer who fights for that, you know, in Albany. No, no, no. So I, I don't actually happen. think this is going to happen. I, ju I just threw it as like a device, right, <laughs> to, to start a conversation. So... The other thing is like you would arbitrage away your own benefit in a way. Like if you're lowering the constraint on the feeder, you, you'd be lowering the demand charges for the feeder and you'd actually like lower. Your payback would then be lower. <laughs> exactly. So I think like an interesting parallel though, and, and like Duncan, we, we should come back to what you just said, but I've always kind of had this assumption that transmission network was this like beautiful private infrastructure owned it and they got paid through like some market transactions, right? And it, it kind of works like that in Texas, it sounds like, but it doesn't in the Northeast. And so like going back to Duncan, what you had said is like, what if we just think for a moment how generators, you know, ship power on the transmission network and stuff like that. Like we treat distribution networks very differently than transmission. If the grid were just like one, there was no line between transmission and distribution, like what would things look like, I guess, from like a payment, like what would be the right way to like price signals, I guess. The congestion points would depend on whether they're transmission or distribution, right? And that's like where the costs would kind of stack on top of each other. So thinking through that, like the right locational pricing wouldn't just be for for the supply to get to you, but it would also be the distribution level. And there'd have to be some way of breaking that out. Or you'd have to combine just combine transmission distribution into one entity. But Vita does try and like break them out. Yeah, Vitor's trying to break them out. Vitor's trying to like break every component out into its sort of like some of its parts, which in theory, right? Like if you were to be seeing nodal based pricing at a distribution level, you would hope it would include, you know, the majority of those items in it. Right. So I guess what's I'm getting to is in Texas, the infrastructure owners have like a payment obligation to the grid in a way. And the load serving entities have an, a payment obligation to that, that get, then gets paid to the infrastructure owners. So they can, in some cases, expose the customer directly to that price signal or like have some rate base mechanism where like, you know, residential all gets kind of one catch all rate. Mm -hmm. And that seems to function, right? So it doesn't have to be like demand, dynamic demand charges, but. <laughs> 
the infrastructure owner like has some leeway in assigning a like the end customer being exposed to the to the infrastructure price or rate basing it in a sense. I mean, I think it's an interesting idea of how we think through the application of the different rates, right? Like ultimately, I think all of these solutions are trying to get at the same thing, which is valuing things accurately and valuing things in a way that like will contribute to projects being built and people being able to understand it. And I think the question becomes, where does it get too complicated so that developers don't really know how to approach it? And so it sounds like in Texas, they have maybe a simpler solution. And I think here, there's so many things to think about. And I'm not a project developer, so I know you all have your models. Um, that I think that's, for me, like the sticky part is almost like having a dynamic price, like while scarier from a project development perspective, feels like it's at least something, I don't know, it's somehow more knowable or more like approachable in a way. But maybe that's just me being like, there's just one number. The model, then you maybe have to decide all these values yourself. Here's where we're going to come full circle, right? Is where I, th- I, I've said, I think there's a light at the end of the tunnel, right? With the LBMP and the capacity, well, mainly the LBMP, right? I think if this framework allows for bilateral transactions, like if we start seeing bilateral transactions, it could really warm up the developer community to taking some form of commodity risk. So basically one of the line items is like, you just get the day ahead market price for the LBMP, right? The wholesale market price. That's actually being paid out by the utility and not the market. But I, as a commodity trader, could probably approach that some owner of a bunch of Vder projects and say, like, I, I, I'm willing to take a bet on the, on the direction of power prices for the next five years. I'll give you two cents a kilowatt hour if you give me all of your exports, essentially. And you now have contracted revenue, right? And if when prices are above two cents, I keep it. When they go below, I'm on the hook for it, right? Like creating a futures contract, which I I haven't, I'm not sure has happened yet or like if it's even allowed because it's being settled through the utility. But I don't see why like a commodities trade, like a, a desk and the financier couldn't just like do this, set up some bilateral, like it's a, just a, contract mm-hmm. between them, right? And then I as a supplier like you know I can start hedging out for these developers, right? And if you kind of roll this down, you know, 5 years down the line and like everyone is doing these supply deals essentially or capacity deals, you know, if they can, you know, hedge out like capacity obligations too, there is like the potential for there actually being even when you're getting handed these blunt 28 cents, like as that community credit starts getting notched down, a familiarity with how things work in wholesale power. And by wholesale power, I mean like big power plants, that whole thing, right? It's mm-hmm. so like, that's my, I, I just kind of started thinking about it today. It's like, oh, there actually is a framework here to potentially start thinking about this solar farm on a you know, community center in Brooklyn as a, as like a, a power, like a coal plant and like how right. risk there, which is like, what that's where we have to get to. Right. Like certain people want to mitigate risks. There are other people who are willing to take on risk. How do we enable that? It's really interesting. I, I'm so curious about how 
even like, is it allowed aside? I would think that to break out the components of the veto tariff in terms of a bilateral agreement would be from an accounting perspective, potentially complicated. No, I think it'd be easy. I mean, it's just like kilowatt hours times the LVMP, right? So it's. Yeah. And then I guess they'd pay you that. The settlement may be complicated. Like when yeah. you settle up monthly, quarterly escrows like that, that stuff could get. Yeah. But I assume those are all things that have been worked through in, in prior. Well, at the wholesale level. Yeah. Because like levels, post collateral yeah. to the wholesale market to be able to trade. Right. Like that's where if you're building a solar farm. Like that's where we're going to need to get to eventually. Like it should work just like you know, wholesale power works. Like why is exporting, importing, like why are these things different, right? I, I feel like there are perhaps, I don't know if they've actually been executed, but small examples of what you're describing, James. I've heard of in, in very, very small numbers, and I'm not sure it's like something people are interested in continuing to do, but I have heard of not so much power traders, but like community solar service providers signing long-term offtakes with with projects yep which isn't exactly like the contract for differences type of you know like futures contract you described but in effect it's the same thing it gives it gives the project developer or asset owner like revenue certainty or at least revenue unit revenue certainty um and then they take the the upside or the downside whichever materializes they do it through the community solar sort of mechanism right through that program and you know uh, a forward view on what you can sell these credits to people for but it's a similar kind of idea um i actually i don't know a month or two ago asked twitter about this i said like you know i i don't think project developers and project financiers really want to be exposed to this stuff who's out there like buying cheap solar and selling it for a lot higher but taking that risk and i got some responses from you know, people like in that deep in that world of, 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 of providing community solar services. And the responses were kind of like, it's interesting. Like we've maybe done it once, but like community solar is a small market. Like we don't really want to like develop this offering, you know, to make like small margins with a bunch of risk on a small total addressable market. Like it was kind of this sort of like, yeah, we get it. It makes sense on paper, but it's just not all that interesting to us. That was like the view I got back. Right. And I think that was actually what I was going to say next is like when you start seeing large community solar off takers, like, you know, for example, Arcadia is like a huge owner of community solar. Like once you hit enough scale, those groups can start structuring these yeah. types of deals. You know, the volume needs to be there probably for that transaction to make sense. Yeah, and and if Arcadia is willing to own a sol a community solar plant, I mean it's the same set of risks basically. What's the difference between that and signing a low price PPA with the developer? It's just a different way of getting the the electrons. I think that's really interesting. Like I that I think that's a means by which you know everybody can sort of do what they're good at. <laughs> Whereas right now the way the market works is like you have like small regional or local solar EPCs like trying to spin up their own software, like figure out how to manage subscribers, like taking on market risk that, you know, their business has never been exposed to and they don't really necessarily, I don't want to say they don't understand because these are smart people, but they're not built to deal with 
Um, and at the same time, you have like power traders and, you know, other types of service providers, like, like not in the game. <laughs> and, and it's like, it seems obvious that, that we need to connect these two somehow. And, and maybe it's as simple as like bilateral contracts can get it done. It's as market matures, people will do this. Right. So like as much as I've hammered on Vitor, like my hope is that things like that start happening and it, you need scale, right? From like, as you know, from a project development standpoint, one to de deploy capital, two to like hedge out large amounts of supply or whatever it is, the numbers need to be big. So you need a lot of projects to happen. So my hope is that we've put this community credit in and it does incentivize deployment, right? But it's not going to be meaningful unless like at sufficient scale, some of these you know, things start emerging basically that look like mm -hmm. a market. And we should always like, we should look for where those things are and like really go after them because we need, you know, like you just said, Duncan, everyone's good at a certain thing. Like that, there's this segmentation at the wholesale level that makes sense. And like that has to happen at the distribution level. So hopefully we're, you know, it, it gets us there anyways. Yeah. I think it's really interesting to think through that and almost then to allow the community credit to be something that will hopefully like bring the scale up enough such that people will want to come in because there'll be um, enough of a total addressable market there. And then you, you know, ratchet the community credit down. Yeah. I, I was actually, I was just thinking about this, James, like, yeah, I think there's a case for you being supportive of the community credit. Definitely. Which is like, what's better for you is if assets already exist. Right. Because like if your offerings have to justify the building of assets, I'm not saying they can't, but it's it's a bigger hurdle. Right. Because we have to think in 20 year increments. But if an asset already exists and it's just like, hey, I want next year to be more profitable than last year. Like that's awesome for traders. That's awesome for people in commodities. Right. Because then it's just it's all kind of like marginal. So maybe like where we're going is like we're just going to get a bunch of ship built. It's going to be financed via revenues that are weird but like you know with that base of installed distributed assets then we can like start to do cool stuff right and so my bias my disdain for Vitor up to this point <laughs> in time was i'll be honest like my bias as david energy like we look for being the retail energy provider when there's kind of flexible demand or controllable load behind the meter, right? So when you push things in front of the meter, we're like, okay, well, that model doesn't work. I'm not gonna give away the secret sauce, but I, I'll say like to what you were just speaking to, we've started thinking a lot more about, there are some dynamics here from like, it still doesn't look like a normal wholesale, you know, power operation, basically. Like some of what we're after could still emerge out of this. So like you know, I, I've been biased up to this point in time, but what does remain, which I actually didn't even realize until this podcast, like it came to you when we were talking, is this idea of resiliency. You know, David Energy was formed out of this desire to like, wow, a distribution grid, a distributed grid could be so much better if we architect a system this way. Like the business came later. So, um, well, you know, we're going to try and find ways to to capitalize on whatever assets are being built to your, to your point, Duncan. But I'm still, you know, going to try and be the purest in the bunch being like, we got a couple supply to load, like we got to build a resilient grid. So that's, that's my, you know, kind of bring this conversation full circle, like, you know, still remain a proponent of that. 
Mm-hmm. And it, it's more about the system architecture than it is like David Energy's ability to operate in a front of the meter environment, right? So I think that's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think regardless of how this stuff is deployed, right? Like there's always a space for reconciling the fact that like at some point, the impact of energy on the grid is temporal and locational. Like, like yep. somewhere in this stack, somebody can play that. I have a resilience. I have a crazy resilience idea. Yes. Ooh, I think this is a good way to bring it home. Okay. So there's a community credit, which is meant to help like increase the ability for everyone to get access to DERs, which is a very laudable goal. What if, similar to how you have three alternatives for the ICAP, you could have a community credit or a resilience credit that would be like an adder you could get if you were able to offer the community resources by being available when the grid is down. So I'm like down. say you're an Ikea, you can get extra credit, but like if there's a power outage, you have to allow people to like come and cool off in your store. I, yeah, I think that, I mean, in fact, I say, I think like that's way more of a community credit. Yeah. Than, like, like the other thing. It's named like, 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 like community yeah. credit, alt one, Someone community credit, alt this. two. Like, like res- I really re- hope people resilience. don't listen to this and like, that's what the community credit is. Like you moron, like James, <laughs> like resilience helps the community. And I, I mean, I'd go as far as to say like, whether or not like Ikea is contractually obligated to like, let people plug in their phones and stuff. Like, I think generally resilience helps the community, right? If Ikea is open, that means like people can do stuff they want to do, right? If the supermarkets open, people can buy food. Like, I think resilience is of public value. And like the community credit makes a ton of sense there. Like I, I, I love that. I think that, and I also think that's actionable. Like that's not a, that's not a pipe dream. Like let's totally rework the system thing. That's like, somebody should just add that. And yeah. It and it's work. already like the yeah. local utility. So if they're already allocating costs to a project like that, it should incentivize like. But at what value? That's always the question. Like. What's the well, what, what what's the community credit? Why don't you just shift it to like you only get this if if you can you can uh, island this load in a yeah it's a fair point right, right? like yeah. with the community credit if you want to push this way, thing in front of the meter it. you better get the resiliency of behind the meter I like it I think we just solved the grid <laughs> I think der task force has its first like official comment to the PSC like ready to roll here <laughs> like like. I know you guys didn't know you signed up for a political action, you know, organization, but I think that's what we got to do. Like, it, it makes so much sense. It's so obvious. Maybe, maybe we'll ask at the yeah. next at the next meetup if anybody would want to like throw something together. Justin, get on it. Yeah, we're calling <laughs> out our members. <laughs> I want to throw out something. Then this isn't so much a crazy idea, but just like I don't know. I've been doing a lot of work in California re- recently. And thinking about, you know, post net metering solutions and Veter is one of them. Another version was what California did, which was like way, way, way less ambitious, which was just, they literally called it net metering 2.0. And it did some reasonable things though, which was basically, it tried to solve the problem of net metering isn't time specific and net metering, you know, gives you too much money. <laughs> like it, there's... And, and all it did basically was change up the time of use rate structures and how exports apply to that such that, you know, now if, in a lot of places in California, if you, you know, export during peak solar hours, like you don't really get much for it. 
if you can shift that over between, you know, like six and 9 PM, like you get a lot more for it during the duck curve. So that's the first thing it did. And two, they created, or I don't know if they created, but they applied uh, non-bypassable charges, right? This idea that like some of the stuff in your bill, like doesn't go away just because you're exporting. Now, whether or not they did that precisely and in a way that makes sense is another debate, but like their approach was basically like, let's define two problems. Let's provide two solutions that still operate completely within the framework of how we do things. And like, let's just roll it out there. And interestingly, like it was nowhere near the political battle that Veter was like, people just got on board. It's, it's driving time of use arbitrage with solar plus storage systems. Yeah. But decoupled to the wholesale market. Oh, sure. And as is like every, everything on the bill in California, like none of it makes any sense, but like, it's interesting that they just sort of like slotted into like net metering tweaks, hence the name net metering 2.0, like put it out there and like people responded and like now they're doing it. And while it's certainly suboptimal, like people are shifting their solar until later the day, people are not getting paid for like stuff that doesn't make sense to get paid for. Like it, it did something like, I don't really love it, but like, it's worth recognizing that like there was another approach that while less ambitious, like I think got the same job done, if not better than Veter. This is a whole other rabbit hole, but like, you know, it's the constant New York versus California debate. So we don't have to go all the way into it, but like, I think there'll be a reckoning mm-hmm. with how, how little sense a lot of that makes, right? Like the time of use part of it, their rates are super high. Like their grid's not working. So like successful is, you know, one way of call. They've deployed a lot of DERs. Yes. But like, I do think California will be faced with this major market restructuring pain that mm-hmm. New York is trying to go through like in advance. So yep. New York Veter is like, it's slower adoption, but like, I think everyone's really optimistic in the developer community that like things are really going to start picking up in New York. It's maybe not the perfect framework. You know, it's not a blunt like time of use rate. It's there's yeah. an LBMP in there. Like that's, that's good. good. <laughs> yeah. No. And I, I agree. I think I, uh, intellectually prefer beer, but it is an interesting contrast that like, yes, they took this other route. It was like super simple. They just like updated the words in the, in the tariff and that was it. And like, it's getting some, some benefit to the grid. It is helping the duff curve to some extent because they just kind of like did the simple thing and moved on. Right. And I think important to like recognize that Vitor is gets a lot of love and discussion nationally because it has tried to take on so much, but a lot of other states are reckoning with the same problems and dealing with it in a lot of different ways that we will not go into today. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's definitely true. So like, I think this is actually a really interesting way to wrap this up. So we have discussed today the downsides of net metering approaches to moving beyond net metering and the, you know, some examples of what some states have tried to do. Right. But all of it framed in this view of like, we got to get away from net metering because that doesn't work. That certainly doesn't scale. What do we think about the petition filed with FERC that essentially tries to kill net metering? And like, without going into the specifics of it, like given this whole conversation was, how do we move past net metering? Net metering is not good. Do we think it's so bad that it should be federally killed? Absolutely not. So my understanding was that like purple worked, right? 
so I, I could be wrong. I haven't, I haven't read much about this, but my understanding was that they were trying to push it to more like making it the avoided costs to the utility instead of like this retail credit, which that's actually what purple was. Right. Cause like utilities were vertically integrated. Right. Um, so the transmission network was like what the distribution network looks like now. Cause it was like one infrastructure owner. So in my view, like wouldn't Vder stand up under that order? So in a way, oh yeah, yeah. By saying like, let's make this about avoided costs, which in a way is like Vder's trying to really think about costs, like the, the actual cost, the utility and the system. Like with Purpo, we still wound up with wholesale markets. So like maybe, maybe it'll just like spur Vder like change in a lot of states. Like if FERC comes in heavy-handed, busts up the net metering, like the states that want to, will be like, we want rooftop solar, so let's just create a framework that makes it work that's compliant with this rule. So that's my that's my counter take. Right. Like if there was a nuanced position of you can't do net energy metering, but you also can't just do supply rate and you need to come up with what the value of DERs is, like Vitor, um, yeah, I'd say go for it. That sounds great. If it's just sort of we're going to kill it and we let states decide how to handle it, I maybe have more mixed feelings. It could be a motive to like just shut down the industry and then I'm not down with it, obviously. Uh, but I, I think that's what it is personally. Like I think it's- but it, it may have an unintended consequence. I'm like, maybe let's find out if like the industry is this unstoppable force and we like adapt to it and actually make things better. The one other interesting take on it, which I think does apply to our conversation is like, however distribution grid level assets are compensated, it shouldn't be a FERC thing. Like, cause like if they're compensated via, right. via, via ISOs, it becomes then a thing under the, the sort of realm of FERC. Right. And states are like, no, we want to control that ourselves. Shouldn't be a federal thing. Um, and I think that's an interesting right. I mean, question. what this gets into like, isn't it like the interstate commerce act where like, if I don't grow my corn in Indiana, it actually affects the prices like in the state over. And that gives federal jurisdiction. I don't know. I may sound this is the extent of my legal knowledge, but like the argument could be that like a local solar array like affects the price in New York affects the prices of power in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. That that is the argument. Yeah. Yeah. That is the argument. A, a movement I very uh much appreciate and identify with to to large degree is like is localism, right? So like put it you know, community credit, we've been talking about like power, you know, get more local power, like put more power in the hands of communities. So like get FERC out of that discussion. I'd, I'd probably mm -hmm. err on the side of that, but I just don't like know enough to yeah. actually be cogent on this. So I think a closing thought, a optimistic take is I feel at least with Vder, like things are moving I don't know how to explain it any other way than like, it feels like a rock rolling down a hill, like this inevitability in a way. Like I always talk about Purpa and how that led to wholesale markets is like, there's going to be growing pains and I can say Vder sucks today, but maybe it doesn't and it'll get us there like tomorrow, right? And like, it's just a rock roll down the hill and it'll get to the bottom eventually. So I think that's still true. That's how I see like the market that even if FERC kills them, net metering, right? Like 
runaway train here. DERs for the win. Going to end wow. on an optimistic note. Wow, much like the uh, the franchise rights conversation, I feel like your uh, your final take was like slightly different than what you advertised it as. Right. We're just wow. we're learning here on the we've, on the task force. We've made progress here. Wow, amazing. Well, that's it for today. We really hope you learned something. I know I did. I always do. And it's funny listening to this episode again after Hurricane Isaias just came through and a lot of people in New York have been without power. It felt sort of eerily reminiscent of Hurricane Sandy. So maybe the community credit, resiliency credit idea that we discussed this time around has some merit. So if there's any policy people out there, developers, maybe we as a community should start pushing for more ideas like this in New York. And we hope it's something that you all as part of the task force could get behind. So with that, uh, we have some awesome new content coming your way, some new meetups, some new videos that we're posting, new episodes we're gonna be releasing. So if you wanna be more involved, check out dertaskforce.com. We just made our first policy comments ever in Connecticut. We wanna continue that. So if you're interested in any policy fights, please find us uh, at dertaskforce.com. And we want to give a special shout out today to a few members, Russell, who provided one of the presentations that inspired this episode, as well as Justin, uh, amazing DER Task Force members, and also to Russell for being the editor extraordinaire. The reason our content sounds mildly decent is because of Russell working away behind the scenes. So thanks to Justin and Russell and... We'll see you all next time.